0: Hello and welcome to Building Local Power, a podcast dedicated to thought-provoking conversations about how we can challenge corporate monopolies and expand the power of people to shape their own future. I'm Jess Del Fiaco, the host of Building Local Power and communications manager here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. For more than 45 years, ILSR has worked to build thriving, equitable communities where power, wealth, and accountability remain in local hands. Hello everybody, today I am joined by two of my colleagues, both from ILSR's Community Broadband Initiative. We've got Sean Gonsalves, you've heard on the show before. He's a reporter and editor with the team, as well as a newbie to Building Local Power. It's Emma Gauthier and she is on the Community Broadband team. Welcome to the show, guys.
1: Top of the morning. How are you doing? (laughs) Good to be here. Thanks, Jess.
0: Yeah. As uh, you all might expect, we're going to be talking about Community Broadband today. And per usual, there's a lot going on. We're going to talk about how communities are using new federal funding. We're also going to take a look at a new scorecard we've put together that grades different internet service providers based on how transparent they are about the services that they offer. But we're going to start with a question for Sean, which is something the whole team has been working on, but I know you've done a lot of work on this uh, specifically, looking at what communities are doing with American Rescue Plan funding to invest that in community broadband projects? Basically, first, why did you guys decide to track this information?
1: Yeah, no, that, that's, that, that's a great question. I mean, we're, we're tracking it because the American Rescue Plan funding is really one of them, is really an unprecedented, massive federal investment being made available. And, and a considerable portion of the funds can be used in communities that are not rural. And also the rules for how the money can be spent are pretty good in terms of investing in municipal networks and community-driven solutions. So we thought it was important to track this large chunk of money that's being made available to, in some instances, directly to counties and, and municipalities, but also as, uh, in, in the form of block grants to, to the states. And particularly because the rules in, some of the, in, in the, how that funding can be spent There's different pots of money. So there's like this $350 billion pot that can be spent on infrastructure related to sewer or water or broadband. Best we can tell, the bulk of that money is not going to broadband, but there is a specific pot of money called the Capital Projects Fund, $10 billion that can be spent on broadband. And the rules as to how you can spend that are pretty cool because there's a lot of flexibility there in terms of how state and local governments can decide how to spend the money. So for example, the the rules give applicants like the authority to, to decide like what is deemed affordable, reliable, and unserved in their respective communities. Prior to this, th- those things were pretty rigidly defined. In this instance, with these rules, the program expands the definition of unserved to take into account whether, for example, internet service in a region is affordable. That's a big issue with accessibility. There's the issue of is the infrastructure in place and therefore is it accessible? But even if it is, if it's not affordable, it's not accessible. So the rules take into consideration that and allow communities to essentially define what unserved means. If, if, if a particular locale is found to be a service exists, but it's not affordable by and large, that can be taken as, as a factor as what's considered to be unserved. And then also there's a new emphasis on on funding scalable fiber projects, uh, elevating investment in historically disadvantaged communities and things, things of that nature, prioritizing investment in infrastructure that's owned by local communities or nonprofits or cooperatives. So there's a lot of good stuff in these new rules. And frankly, it's real new territory in terms of how it was with past federal policy around funding and supporting expanding broadband access, it, which has historically been directed pretty much towards rural America. So in this pot of money, there's a... a a lot more communities have access to this money to do some interesting and creative things with.
0: Right. So fewer restrictions, a lot more communities doing things. And the, the form that these projects are taking is much more diverse too, right? It's not all like fiber to the home networks.
1: Well, it it certainly doesn't have to be, but, but, I would expect that most of these projects will probably be fiber to the home projects. And that's, you know, generally because the capacity is essentially limitless in terms of future needs, bandwidth speeds, fiber can handle it all. It's the most reliable technology out there in terms of internet connectivity. Although, you know, high capacity wireless networks certainly may be the answer for certain communities and, 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 and the pathway that, that certain communities may want to take. So, Federal policy tends to try to be what they call technology neutral, but they also are recognizing what pretty much everyone in the space knows, which is fiber to the home is the gold standard in terms of reliable internet connectivity.
0: So I realize I've said like a bunch of communities quite a few times You're like ah, quite a few of them. Can you give us a sense of, is it like 10 communities? Is it like 200 communities? Like how many projects are on this big list that you guys are tracking?
1: Right. Right, right. We call it the big list. And so we're tracking uh, individual community projects. And right now that list has 132 community-led projects on it, as well as about 17 states have announced significant grant programs for new infrastructure projects. So most of those 132 communities are in those states, although there's some outliers as well, but it's 132. So there's quite a bit of activity going on.
0: Yeah. Speaking of states, I know that's like a whole nother Factor, you guys, you've analyzed how states are spending this money. Could you talk about what different states are doing differently and who's, who's kind of setting the standard for how we would like to see them spend this money?
1: Right. Well, prior to this, the federal government would give out investments. Well, there was the RDOF funding that happened, which was a, this big reverse auction, had a lot of problems. And our position was that the closer this money and these investments are made to the local community, the better. And that's because local communities actually have the best sense of where there's real connectivity challenges of where coverage really exists and how good it is or not. And so this is sort of like the halfway house. So the money is going, instead of this reverse auction that the FCC, FCC runs, let's send the money to the states, which is closer to the to, to the local community. So that, that, that's an improvement. and And as we expected, every state is kind of doing their own thing. So it's like, what's that phrase? Like laboratory, uh, would they say uh, laboratories of democracy, like each state, right? And so it's sort of like that. It's like, uh, you know, laboratories of broadbandification, you know, <laughs> each state is kind of, kind of doing their own thing. And of the 17 states that, that have allocated a, a portion of their rescue plan funds for broadband deployment and, and, and programs, It totals about 7.6 billion across the states, although California makes up about half that amount. In fact, in California, the governor and state lawmakers agreed to invest 3.25 billion to build statewide open access middle mile network. Open access means we're gonna build the infrastructure and then we're gonna invite private internet service providers to use that to deliver retail internet service to households and, and, and businesses. They've also put another 522 2 million of their rescue plan funds to support last mile projects for communities. That's going to be doled out by the state public utilities commission. So California is doing a lot and making massive investments. Arkansas is another interesting state. Now, Arkansas was a state that had pre-engine laws that really made it very difficult for municipalities to build municipal broadband networks. So Earlier this year, the state legislature unanimously removed those barriers. And so now there's all kinds of excitement and buzz around many communities. And so the Arkansas Legislative Council has approved 120 million of rescue plan funds so far. They may approve more. And that's going to 34 shovel ready projects in the state. And there's another twenty seven million dollars that they've provisionally approved for 12 other projects, assuming they pass a technical review. So they're doing some really cool stuff in Maine a state that is very friendly to community driven solutions and they've created this connect Maine authority which is the lead agency that's tasked with reaching the state's goal of connecting pretty much everybody in the state to high-speed internet service by 2025. Now unlike in other states that kind of limit or, or outright ban local communities from building their own networks Maine's broadband action plan puts and they call it community-driven broadband projects they put this right at the forefront of their plans Maryland, we, we have to mention Maryland because Maryland is another state that's doing, that's really putting a lot of money into this. They're, they're putting 300 million of their rescue plan funds. The bulk of that is 97 million is going for the deployment of physical infrastructure. They've earmarked 45 million specifically for municipal broadband grants. So that makes Maryland a state that is investing more money in municipal broadband than, than, than any other state in the nation. So Maryland is doing some really cool things. And in Vermont, again, another state that's well poised to take advantage of this money because in Vermont, they've got these communication union districts, which are essentially these public entities that allow, it allows for two or more towns to come together to form a telecommunication utility, essentially. So there's nine of those in in the state of Vermont that covers pretty much the entirety of the state. There's a handful of scattered towns that have either not joined one or haven't formed one of their own. So they're well poised to move forward. And then Washington, the state of Washington, that is, like Arkansas, they had a preemption law on the books there in Washington. Public entities could build open access infrastructure, but they couldn't provide retail service. Well, they got rid of those that barrier in Washington. And so again, it sort of released the floodgates. And so that state has allocated... 260 million of its rescue plan funds. And now that means the public utility districts, there, some of whom have already built fiber to the home infrastructure, are now going to be able to get into the retail side of things. And so there's a lot of activity in the state of Washington as well. So, generally speaking, those are kind of like the highlights of the states that we consider to be out front as it relates to being real supportive and putting their money where their mouth is in terms of supporting community broadband networks as opposed to just shoveling millions or billions of dollars to the incumbent providers that have happily taken subsidies in the past and don't ever quite seem to connect everybody with that money. Sometimes they just pocket it.
0: You might not have an answer to this question, or maybe you do, but curious if you can explain, I mean, why does does Maine get it? Like, why are they saying, you know, go communities, here you go, you should be leading the way on this effort, whereas other states are still very reliant on those incumbent providers like the big the big guys to solve this problem is it is it like political influence is it just a status quo thing
1: that's a great it's it it's a great question and i'm not going to pretend to have like on the ground inside intel on this although they do have some great community broadband leaders in that state peggy Schaefer, the connect Man authority is terrific but i think Part of what drives that is the reality of the fact that Maine is one of the most rural states in the country and in rural areas, it's, it's not very enticing per, for private providers to provide robust telecommunication infrastructure because the short-term return on investment just really isn't there in rural communities. And so I think what's probably driving it is the reality of when you live in a mostly rural state and you're not attracting big players to the market, you're kind of in a situation where if we're going to have it, we're going to have to build it ourselves. I think that's probably one of the, the, the driving reasons behind why Maine is, is, is friendly to community broadband.
0: Thanks for that. I think that, that makes sense. So related, I was wondering if, uh, if there's any states you can point to that have been kind of bringing up the rear or... I, I
1: hate to bring up the state because it's, it's, it's definitely one of the most beautiful states in the, in, in, in the nation. My brother lives there with his family. I would love to vacation there and lay on the beaches, but Hawaii, as it relates to American Rescue Plan funds, it's, it's a sad situation. We gave them a dishonorable mention in, in the story we had on this, because basically they decided to only spend 5 million of their Rescue Plan funds on broadband expansion. But the real reason why we singled out Hawaii was because in order to, to access that paltry allocation, it can only be awarded to what they call a non-governmental entity, which is code for, they're leaving it up to the dominant monopoly providers to just solve their connectivity challenges. And we, as we write and talk about pretty relentlessly, those encumbered providers don't have a good track record when it comes to ensuring universal access to broadband. But in fairness, it's not really their job to make sure everyone's connected. You know, I mean, we don't you know we don't like look to Sears and be like, "How come everybody doesn't have a refrigerator? You know <laughs> what I mean so so in fairness to the incumbent providers, it's not really their job per se. However, if you're going to rely on incumbent providers and the goal is for everyone or if you're recognizing that everyone should have access, I mean, if you use electricity as an analogy, it would be almost like saying, "Yeah, electricity is important and most homes can light up all of their appliances and, but, you know, we're cool with there being a chunk of homes that only have a light bulb <laughs> and we're going to call them being served as having electricity. Right. And so, we're going to
0: actively shut the door on the, you know, the other solutions that like, well, yeah, they're there, you know, but we're not going to like, we're not going to try those.
1: <laughs> right. And it's not because Hawaii's way out there. I mean, Hawaii itself, the islands of Hawaii are, are, are relatively well connected in terms of infrastructure. But again, There, there's, there's, as in any state, there are large pockets of people who can't access that and, you know, largely around, you know, affordability and so forth. But nevertheless, Hawaii gets that dubious distinction. It's probably the only dubious distinction that we can think of about Hawaii, but it's true. (laughs) Uh,
0: I think they'll probably still let you visit, Sean. (laughs) I hope so. So uh, next question. And I, Emma, if you, I'd be curious if you have anything to, to answer to this one as well. But if we just if we did some magical thinking, if we imagined a world without the pandemic in the last two years were whatever normal you know may have looked like without that and somehow local entities still got this bucket of, of funding to use on infrastructure, do you think we still would have seen as much investment in broadband or do you think the level of investment we're seeing in communities on broadband solutions is because of... The experience of the pandemic
1: i love your magical thinking <laughs> and i wish it were true that we didn't that we could have lived in a world without a pandemic these past few years and i'd like to think that at least a handful of states it, if there had not been a pandemic would have done some interesting things with the american rescue plan money but i think the truth is that the pandemic really is the motivating factor and and i think it's because it exposed the digital divide in such a way that it made like everyone realize that high speed internet connectivity is essential to participate in modern society. And that I think the pandemic, that, that, that had been the case prior to the pandemic, but I think the pandemic because of remote work and distance learning and, and telehealth opportunities or not being able to access healthcare um, in certain ways, I think it made everybody realize, oh my goodness, like the, inter- the internet or internet connectivity is a utility at this point. It's, it's, it may not be as important as water or electricity, but it's close. And one other thing, I mean, when you're when you're a town or a city, and all of a sudden you have thousands of kids that are forced to go to school remotely, and they don't have home internet connection, that's a problem. Yeah, the, in that the pressure
0: is on. Like you can't ignore the that. The pressure is
1: on. It's like we have to figure this out like yesterday. And then if you're a business that can't operate, or, or if you're a business that can't operate with a remote workforce, you need reliable connectivity. But if you but and if you're a community and your like economic development is something that's really important, and you're seeing businesses move elsewhere because, you know. The internet sucks in that area. That's a problem. And then there's the telehealth piece. So I think that all of those things kind of came together, and the pandemic just exacerbated what had already existed, and made it clear to everyone that this is something that we need to have universal access to broadband if, if, if we're going to be serious about equity, on it, uh, even rhetorically, you know, even, even sort of nominally, like if, 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 if you're going, if, if people are going to participate in modern society whether that's looking for jobs or or participating in the economy or civic functions or entertainment functions you need a high speed internet connection
2: yeah i would definitely agree with that i mean i'm i i joined the institute a few months ago right and i wasn't working on digital equity and broadband specifically before that so my entire experience in this issue area is in the context of the pandemic and obviously the urgency and importance of good connectivity was really apparent to a lot of people working in this area before the before the pandemic but i think like my own experience is also pretty representative of a lot of people who are interested in equity in general and this pandemic has shown the importance of good connectivity and now i see it totally as you know like a utility and something that's really key to equity and that's why you know i'm here <laughs> working on this because I because I see it as super central. And I think that's probably representative of the way a lot of people have kind of shifted their mindset in the context of the pandemic.
0: Right, like solving the digital divide, bridging the digital divide, however you want, want to phrase that, went from being maybe a, a less prioritized aspect of, you know, pursuing equity in cities and became suddenly like the thing that everything else, <laughs> the thing that was needed for everything else to happen. <laughs>
1: right it went from like this like aspirational vision to like an asap goal almost overnight
0: so that brings me to my next question actually which is what happened on november 2nd did we see this show up in any particular way in local elections what was up with broadband or people voting on
1: we we did we did we actually saw a number of in a number of different states there were some local elections that had Broadband on the ballot, so to speak, or broadband related things on the ballot in, in terms of candidates and their positions. In Colorado, there were three communities that opted out of the state law that they have in Colorado that bans local governments from establishing municipal broadband service. But fortunately, that law do, does allow for local communities to opt out. They have to have a referendum vote. And so three communities did that on Election Day in Colorado, Windsor, Milliken, and Mesa County. In Windsor, they're looking at a, at pursuing a public-private partnership. In in Millican and Mesa, they're sort of they're not quite exactly sure what they're going to do, but they want to have that that freedom. And so they've all those three communities have reclaimed local internet choice in those communities. And then in Maine, some interesting things happened. There was in, in Bangor, you had a city councilor who the, her central plank was, we need to bring municipal broadband to Bangor. we' we're, we're seeing it pop up in these small towns in Maine. There's no reason why we shouldn't have it here in Bangor. And that that message resonated. She won re-election easily. But then in two communities, community broadband kind of took a hit. But an interesting lesson comes out of one of those. So in, in, in Hamden and in China, not the country, but there's a small town in Maine called China. And in both of those communities, there was a proposal on the ballot to fund Uh, municipal broadband network and and voters in both of those communities in China and in Hamden rejected those proposals in Hamden it was resoundingly rejected and but something kind of ominous happened that actually I think is a good lesson for other communities to keep in mind so two things happened one was that the two dominant incumbent internet service providers in that town promised to expand their network in town now, they promised. They didn't sign anything. They didn't like unveil plans. They just said, hey, we're going we're to do this. The other thing that happened is that there is this conservative-leaning think tank, and I put think tank in air quotes because really I, I think of this, some of these groups as fronts for industry, but there's a conservative-leaning think tank out of Portland, Maine, that funded a big opposition campaign. And these kind of opposition campaigns are fairly typical in, in communities that are thinking about that. Because as you can imagine, if you're the dominant monopoly provider, you don't want competition. So you have these kind of campaigns. And so it was sort of the typical boogeyman. You know, it's always oh, it's a waste of taxpayer dollars. Uh, Muni networks don't work, you know, just never mind the hundreds that exist all over the country. But here's the thing. These, these, these well-funded opposition campaigns And by the way, this one in Hamden happened mostly through Facebook, of course. And incredibly, the town did like zilch to counter that campaign. And so it really underscores the importance for community broadband advocates if they're in the process of engaging local leaders on moving forward with the project and, and engaging folks in the community. It's a reminder of the importance of a robust public education campaign on behalf of community broadband networks that 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 cannot be overlooked because if you overlook it you 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 leave that that room open for these opposition campaigns to come in and really scare folks and 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 make folks think that it's just going to be some giant boondoggle
0: right yeah and even if those are you know groundless claims more or less if that's all you hear is scary stuff and multiple voices telling you that that's you know probably what you're going to bring into the voting booth
1: with you right That's right. That's right. Yeah. So I just wanted to highlight that. But, you know, there's some other election stuff that happened, right, Emma?
2: Yeah. I mean, another place we saw some interesting results was Edison Township in New Jersey. And Edison just elected Sam Joshi as mayor. And Joshi's campaign, a central part of Joshi's campaign was a pledge for municipal broadband. And the reasons he gave for centering municipal broadband are things that were you know, pretty familiar with on the community broadband networks team, like Joshi understands municipal broadband is something that's going to do things like increase property values and that kind of thing. And just sees it as a really valuable community investment. So, you know, it's, it's helpful to see things happening in communities like that too.
1: And we'll see if he, he delivers. I mean, it's a, the thing about, you know, Edison township is the, is the fifth largest municipality in the state. About 100,000 people live there. So it's, 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 a big com- it's a big community.
0: Right. Very cool. Glad to hear the good news and the lessons learned are important to know as well. We'll continue with this conversation after a very short break. Thanks for listening to our show. If you're enjoying my conversation with Sean and Emma, I hope you consider heading over to ILSR.org donate. I know we're getting towards the end of the year, and you're going to be hearing a lot of these asks in other podcasts, in your email inbox, in every nonprofit website you visit, uh, in your mailbox. But your support really is a game changer for us here at ILSR. We couldn't do what we do you know, with the, the research that you've heard about today. You make all of that possible. Please visit ILSR.org slash donate to make a contribution today. Any amount is sincerely appreciated. With that... We can go back to the show. So I want to switch gears a little bit to ask some questions to Emma about the new scorecard you've put together. And I'm guessing most of our listeners have experienced the delight of shopping for a new internet service. Uh, You know, perhaps (laughs) going on Comcast's website or CenturyLink and trying to figure out what it is they are trying to sell you (laughs) Um, I mean even even now I have had the same you know internet service for almost four years and finding out if I wanted to find out like what my upload speed is which I've tried to do before it's like layers and layers of searching in my you know in the website to figure out what I pay them for so clearly you know like it's not great do you want to talk about why that lack of transparency has gotten so bad especially from the big companies
2: yeah, definitely. I'll start by like backing up a little bit. So the Internet Transparency Rule is something that was passed by the FCC in 2015, and it was part of the open internet order. And basically what it did was just require providers to give their potential subscribers information about the services they might be getting. So pretty basic, right? The rule was designed you know, to give customers the information they needed to make decisions. And the thing about the rule is it was intended to be something that was very empowering for customers. And it requires providers to disclose things like speed, pricing, any fees that customers might be paying, among other important information that's key to decision-making. And the rule mandates that this information, that providers need to publish this information either on a website that's publicly accessible or on a portal, the FCC Internet Transparency and Disclosures portal, which is searchable to the public. So there's that. But, you know, what becomes pretty clear either when you're trying to purchase internet or you're trying to collect data like I was, or, you know, as you mentioned, you're just trying to figure out what the service that you already pay for is about. <laughs> it becomes pretty clear that the transparency rule just isn't enforced in any real way so like that's why there are so many information gaps it's cuz providers aren't facing real consequences for failing to provide information and we also know that the furthest that the fcc has really gone to reprimand providers that are violating the transparency rule is sending them a series of non-compliance notices which is just like a warning letter and you know, that's
1: a fur, that's a, a
2: big reason.
1: <laughs> a furrowed an eyebrow and. A I imagine them going letter.
0: into like the exactly. like the yeah. junk folder on like you know some CEO's email inbox. Like, <laughs> super effective.
2: Exactly. Yeah. So so that's a big reason that there's such major information gaps. But what we find in this report is that that actually isn't the only problem. You know beyond just not being enforced the transparency rule as it is designed, we argue in this report leaves room for providers to mislead customers by making information either hard to find or hard to understand. So in other words, there are providers that will technically comply with the disclosure requirements, but don't really uphold like the spirit of the rule, so to speak, and the spirit of the rule being to empower customers with the information. So what we're seeing is a bunch of fine print statements as I'm sure many of us are familiar with. And these fine print statements are really designed by the providers to satisfy the disclosure requirements rather than empower customers with the information they need to make decisions, which we know the rule was designed to do. So again, what we find is just one, the transparency rule isn't really being enforced. But two, there's that other problem of accessibility. Like that information might be out there. It's not just, it's just not accessible to people.
0: So are there any like specific consequences of this lack of transparency besides like just general frustration on the consumer's part, trying to, you know, figure out what they're buying?
2: Yeah, this problem, providers not being transparent, it might kind of seem like something that's like annoying or inconvenient, but it's actually... A really big problem beyond that because we know especially in the context of the pandemic that broadband is a very important thing to a household so a household or a person's ability to make informed decisions about what kind of service they're going to subscribe to is really important and things like knowing what you're going to get knowing how much you're going to pay for it knowing if there are going to be huge fees that are going to come up either an in installation or monthly fees that's important to selecting the service but it's also really important to budgeting for the service information obviously is just really important to budgeting and because we know affordability is a huge barrier for a lot of people we just have to pay attention to this kind of stuff um, making sure people have the information they need to budget and obviously information isn't the only thing that's gonna help with the problem of affordability and access but it but it is an important part
0: can you talk a little bit about how you approached this this report, kind of like what you looked at at for different providers, and then how different types of internet service providers, and by that I mean like could be one of the big cable companies like Comcast, or it could be a municipal network that, you know, your own town owns. How do those different types of providers compare to each other?
2: Overall, what we found in collecting data for this scorecard was that municipal and cooperatively run networks score the highest, while private fiber and cable providers scored kind of somewhere in the middle, and then private fixed wireless providers scored pretty low. But there were a couple specific things that we were able to draw from that data. And the first, which seems pretty obvious, is that you know, smaller more locally run networks score higher than large providers, and these large providers are in many cases not based in the communities that they're serving. And we believe that that's related. That's that's a big deal, right? So, we talk all the time at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance about the importance of decision making happening close to the people who are being affected by those decisions, and we talk about just the importance of local accountability and that kind of thing. And we find that local providers are more accountable to their customers. So they're more transparent with them. You know, they're, they're closer to the people that they're serving. And what this report really does is it just adds evidence to the claim that government policy should encourage networks that are locally accountable. And the second conclusion that we kind of drew was while there are providers that completely omit information from their websites, there are also others that do publish information. It's just really hard to access. And obviously, this is something that I I touched on before when I was explaining the transparency rule. So what we did for this report was design the scorecard in a way that shows both providers that omit information and providers that provide poor quality information, because we believe that There's a difference there, and it's important to kind of make that distinction when we're trying to solve the transparency issue. So taking upload speeds, for example, which is the speed that you can, the speed at which you can upload something to the internet. If a provider did not list upload speeds anywhere online, that provider received a zero. If its upload speeds were super clear and easy to find, it received a two. But if upload speeds were buried somewhere in the fine print and received the one. So you can see on the scorecard, you know, the difference between good information, poor quality information and missing information. And we found that cable providers in particular had a lot of poor quality information. And what this tells us is that cable providers care about complying with the transparency rule, but they don't necessarily care about providing potential customers with the information they need in a way that's actually accessible to them and easy for them to understand. So what we need in terms of policy is something that addresses the, ex- the accessibility problem, not just the omission problem, omission of information.
0: So we've already got the transparency law on the books though. So do we need to just enforce that? Is there specific policy additions that we need or is that still kind of up in the air?
2: Yeah. So what we what we point to in the report is something called the Broadband Nutrition Label, which was proposed by New America's Open Technology Institute a few years back. And New America has also been doing some really great work on the transparency problem. So I encourage everyone to check out their work. But the label is based on the nutrition label that you see on the back of packaged food in grocery stores. And it's designed to make it basically a lot easier for customers to make decisions about internet service. So what it does is it requires providers to disclose things like speed and price. A lot of what we see in the transparency rule, it also requires providers to make disclosures about what the price will be before the promotional period ends. So the promotional price and the price after that promotional period ends, which is really important because a lot of providers say, Hey, look, like this is the price just to get someone in the door, you know, and like six months later, it'll be a much higher price. And that's, that's kind of another example of something that's pretty hard to budget for, like I mentioned. So because it's a very standardized format, it doesn't leave room really for fine print and that kind of thing. It's also something that is very accessible, the standardized Format makes it a lot more accessible than the information as it currently exists across a bunch of providers' websites. And the Broadband Nutrition Bill is actually something that is currently written into the infrastructure bill, which is formerly known as the Infrastructure Investments and in Job Act, which is currently held up in the house. So this is a, a timely conversation <laughs> and, you know, we hope it passes soon. We hope it contains the broadband nutrition label because we believe that it's a policy solution. It's a simple policy solution to addressing this, this problem of accessibility and just making the internet market much um, easier to navigate. And what I'll say too is just the fact is that information is part of what makes a market function properly. And we, we just don't have good information in the broadband market right now. And a lack of transparency also means that, you know, entrepreneurs don't have the information they need to make decisions about whether to enter the market or where to make adjustments in their own offerings. And entrepreneurship is such an important part of, you know, competition and the development of the broadband market.
0: You're talking, you're talking specifically like internet service providers, entrepreneurs yeah. who
2: are getting into that business. Okay. Just want yeah. to make
0: sure you didn't mean like
2: someone <laughs> opening a coffee shop. <laughs> right. Yeah. Entrepreneurship.
1: Well, they need, they, they need to know if they can get an affordable coffee. shops need to know if they need, yeah. need affordable true, connections to offer free yeah. Wi-Fi. I mean, that's an important draw <laughs> for their customers. They need to know those things.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> True. Yeah. We know that just entrepreneurship is really important to the broadband market specifically. And I think that information gaps are likely to stifle innovation happening in the broadband market. And that just has the potential to harm the market, which is not at all what we want to see. But what what our policy recommendations really come down to is just like making sure people have the information they need to make decisions. You know, that's that's what it's really about. So we hope that all all works out in Congress. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't we all?
0: We've had a lot of conversations that land on that yeah, note lately. Yeah. <laughs> so I just want to remind listeners that they will be able to find both that report that you've been talking about, Emma, as well as our big list of community broadband projects and Sean's research um, linked in the show notes for this episode. So. You can go check that out on our website. But I wanted to bring it back to Sean for a minute before we wrap up. Is there anything, any thoughts that you wanted to share about the scorecard or or otherwise?
1: No, I mean, there's just a lot of, there's a lot of moving pieces. There's a lot of activity. There's a lot of politics, though, that's involved in, particularly on the federal level and the whole, that whole sausage making process. But it's, it's, it's exciting and it's encouraging to see more and more communities looking at taking this challenge on themselves and realizing after a long time, you know what? If we're gonna really get what we want, we're gonna to have to build it ourselves. And I say this all the time, but it's it's so obvious that it's painfully obvious, but if it exists, it's possible. And there's hundreds of communities that are have either already built municipal broadband networks, some, ex, some that are extremely successful. Some of the, the fastest ISPs in the country are municipal uh, networks and you know to that local accountability piece that's the other thing that's 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 so key and sometimes it's hard to quantify but you but i think people can understand that when a community network is built and operated and maintained by the people in your community that in and of itself brings a level of accountability that is unmatched you know you're 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 bumping into those people in the grocery store your kids play sports together so There's that level of accountability. And one of the things that is tough to quantify, but I hear anecdotally all the time and talking to folks in various communities is the difference between before they had a municipal network and they had to rely on the monopoly provider. And then after they got one is the difference in the customer service experience. And that is hard to quantify, but it's something that's huge for people. It means a lot for folks to not call a help desk in a foreign country and be on hold for two hours and then be given a, an, uh, an appointment two or three weeks down the line between the hours of nine and five, it, it's, 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 it's a huge difference. And to be able to call somebody, they answer the phone, they're a local person, and your problem is fixed relatively quickly. Those kind of things matter a lot to people and I hear it all the time. And there's just so, you know, we can obviously go on for days and days talking about this, but it's, it's actually a lot going on In this space and there is a widespread movement across the country kind of flies under the radar but of communities who have said you know what we can do this and we're going to do this and thankfully the federal government is now adjusting policies to help make that happen and invest some real dollars and support behind those efforts
0: well i think you just gave us a very good note to end on sean thank you for that thank you for joining me and thank you emma This was really great. Appreciate having you guys on. Thank you. Thank you. Actually, before we let you go, Emma and I do have a very brief update to share with you.
2: Yeah, so since this episode of the podcast was recorded, Congress actually passed the $1.2 trillion Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act which contains the broadband nutrition label. And we're really excited to see that this passed. We hope to see it enforced and we'll have more information on this in the report itself.
0: As we mentioned before, that report is linked in the show notes for this episode and you can find it on our website. All right, thanks all. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Building Local Power podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. You can find links to everything discussed today by going to ilsr.org and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ilsr.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our many newsletters and connect with us on social media. We hope you'll also take the opportunity to help us out with a gift that helps produce this very podcast and supports the research and resources we make available for free on our website. Finally, we ask that you let us know how we're doing with a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. The show is produced by me, Jess Yako, and edited by Drew Birchbach. Our theme music is Punk Interlude by Dysfunction Now. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Jess Fiacco, and I hope you join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power.